Now, I saw a video not, not that long ago where, where Francis Chan was talking about his recent change of, of direction in ministry, kind of away from his, his megachurch model that he was involved with. And I mean, we can debate all day long about whether the, the megachurch model is, is the best model, uh, if it's good or bad or neutral or whatever. At, at the end of the day, um, I'm not sure we can nail down exactly like what size of church is the, the perfect size, you know, if it's 60, no bigger than 60 or 100 or 200 or 500 or whatever, whatever size is the ideal, you know, the kind of Goldilocks, not too big, not too small thing. I talk online and in person with pastors of churches of all sizes and those pastors have wonderful stories about what God is doing in tiny little churches and huge ones and they have true horror stories about the things that can go wrong. In, in any size of church as well. So the perfect size of perfect church is a myth. But, but back to the video. Uh, Chan was describing some of the challenges faced by his larger church, notably things like difficulty connecting and people finding a place to, to belong. And he described one young man who, who came to know Jesus and was saved uh, out of a gang and, and a life of crime. He was baptized, he was eager to follow Jesus, and then before long, and somewhat to, to Chan's surprise, that he'd stopped seeing this young man coming to church, and he wasn't engaged in, in the life of their community anymore, and uh, he followed up with him, and, and the young man's response was that he expected church to be more like his, his former gang, right? That people would be closely involved all the time with one another's life, and that, that people would be there for one another no matter what. And he just wasn't finding it that way. Author and journalist Sebastian Younger has documented some of this, this same struggle with, with soldiers returning from combat. And, and he argues that one of the, the main reasons that PTSD is, is such a problem for soldiers returning from overseas combat isn't the, the things they've witnessed or even the things they've done per se, but the fact that they have such a weak support system once they get back to civilian life. In other words, the, the, the combat might be terrible, but you are doing it with a really tight-knit group of people you know really well, you spend all your time with, they're there, they've got your back in, in literal life-or-death situations. Now, we can say a lot of things in response to this. We can say that, well, the bond might be real, kill or be killed is is an unfortunate and even a tragic thing to come together over. And we can also say that, that the soldier or, or the gangster, for that matter, uh, the group you're bonding with and the goal you're bonding in, in service of, be that combat or a life of crime, that happens to be the thing you spend all day, every day doing. Right? It would be hard to expect that kind of commitment, say, to, the, to a local church from from the mom who has small children to raise while trying to run a business, or the dad who works all day and has elderly parents he needs to look after, you know, in the time when he's not at work, or, or the student who has not only assignments but other things they're involved in, family life, and a whole bunch of adults telling them, be here and do this, a lot of pressure. Nevertheless, in our passage for today, Jesus calls his followers to, to a higher level of commitment, more like th that first type of commitment where you're, you're this tightly knit bonded group rather than the kind of commitment where it's just sort of, well, a hobby. So let's look at that passage together from John chapter 13. 
well-known passage. I'd invite you to stand as we, we hear from God's word. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. And when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you might have, uh, might have talked a little bit about this in, in your groups uh, as to where we were when we started this series. Uh, we've had a few weeks in between then and now. We've had youth quake and all that that entails. But remember where we started. We were in 1 John to start this series and to start the, the season of Epiphany. And in our very first text, uh, we read, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the, the propitiation for our sins. We talked about how the season of Epiphany, which, which comes from the same Greek roots as this term made manifest, is about celebrating the, the revelation of God coming into the world in Jesus. And that's often in the scriptures described symbolically in terms of, of light coming into the world. One of the big themes we've looked at throughout this series has been that Jesus reveals the Father. And therefore, Jesus reveals the attributes of the Father. And in particular, for us in this series, we've looked at Jesus revealing to us the Father's love and what that looks like. That is to say that knowing what God looks like and what his love looks like is a, is a top-down thing. God is love. Jesus reveals the Father's love to us. That's how we know what love is. We don't take our own cultural understanding and then apply that to God. What we see in Jesus is true of the Father. This is the point that Jesus makes at the start of our text for today as well. As it were, we've kind of come around full circle to where we find ourselves in today's passage. Now, all throughout the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with it at all, if you've been in John recently, we keep hearing about this, this time that's coming, this, this event that's always in John's gospel, just on the horizon. 
uh, that John calls Jesus' hour. Throughout the first 11 chapters, it's mentioned, but it's always mentioned as, as a not yet reality. His hour has not yet come, John keeps telling the reader. And in chapter 12, that changes. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here, in this passage, though he doesn't specifically say hour, we still have a continuation of that theme, especially with the language of Jesus glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying Jesus. However, as we know, reading this story from our side of it, Jesus' hour of glory, where he brings this climactic glory to the Father and climactically and ultimately reveals the Father's love to us, kind of looks the exact opposite of what we would probably expect glory to look like. I don't know if any of you have been into Star Wars at all, but this most recent round through the Star Wars universe, there's been a lot of talk about, about uh, subverting the viewer's expectations, right? You've probably heard that. You know, old and cranky Luke Skywalker getting the lightsaber and then flipping it over his shoulder. Subverting viewers' expectations. But that really is nothing on how Jesus subverts expectations of what glory should look like. hear all this talk about power and glory and being lifted up and the, the ruler of this world being driven out and the wickedness of the world being judged. And we naturally want to go like, yeah, that, that's great, that's awesome, Jesus is going to do it. Except we all know that that's not how the story ends, right? Jesus' hour of glory is not this, this mighty triumph and crowds cheering. But it still is a triumph, right? We know that Jesus, in his, in his suffering and in his death, actually accomplished all those things. The, the, the prince of this world being, being defeated and, and sin being judged. He just did those things in a completely mind-blowing and unexpected way. So look at the context in which he says these words about the, the, the times coming that he's going to glorify the Father and the Father is going to glorify him. And, and it, it is here. Chapter 13, what's, what's John chapter 13 known for? Well, well, amongst other things, that's the chapter where John uniquely records this episode of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in a show of, of utmost humility. And in this little chapter, he also has just predicted Judas' uh, betrayal. And he's let him go. He knows Judas is going to betray him. And, and he just lets him go. I mean, we, we know from, from just a few verses down, Peter's got a sword. I mean, presumably Jesus could have been like, bar the door, guys. Like, don't let this guy go. We're going to end this right here, right now. Judas is not going to the high priest. Of course, that's not what happened. That's, that was not how Jesus was going to fulfill his mission. That was not how he was going to bring glory to the Father. Or how the Father was going to bring glory to him. And in this chapter, in this, this little central new commandment passage, he's, he's trying desperately almost, you might say, th through his earlier actions of washing the disciples' feet and him giving them this new commandment, he's, he's trying to get them to understand what this thing about bringing glory to him and glory to the Father 
the way of his kingdom is going to look like. He's trying to get them to understand, and the stakes could not be higher. I mean, even as he gets around to saying this, Judas is on his way to betray Jesus. He might be standing before the high priest, handing Jesus over at that moment. This is, this is it. This is crunch time. Jesus is going away, and they can't come. Jesus is, of course, going to be parted from them in his death. And even though that's going to, we know, come out in his victory eventually and his resurrection, he's still going to be parted from them after that when he returns to the Father. And there are a couple important implications in this. First is theological. In his obedience to the Father, in his bringing glory to the Father, in his showing us ultimately and climactically and redemptively what the Father's love for his wayward children looks like. Jesus' work is, is completely unique and unrepeatable. It's not just, you know, quantitatively different from what we might do. You know, well, it's just better or more, bigger by degree. It's qualitatively different from what anything we could do. Jesus' love redeems the world in his going to the cross. Jesus showing us the Father's love and his passion and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. These are, these are once for all unique events. However, even, even as we confess that, that Jesus did these things and, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we believe that he's at the right hand of God interceding for us even now. But his personal work doesn't continue in a visible way here on earth. People sometimes, even as the Apostle Paul did, and we hear about it sometimes in, in missionary contexts, in the Muslim world it seems especially prominent, people have visions or some, some experience of Jesus appearing to them. And those seem to be common enough and, and have enough in common that they seem to be genuine. But as a rule, we don't see Jesus walking around doing stuff the way he did during his earthly ministry. You don't say, you know, I, I heard Jesus was preaching in Saskatoon last week and he healed people and he did all this stuff. You know, the way that people 2,000 years ago saw Jesus and heard about him and actually interacted with him in a physical way. So can, can you hear the urgency in Jesus' voice here as he's trying to get his disciples to understand that, that he's not going to be doing this anymore. He's going away, but his mission, his kingdom, still has to continue. If what he started and a, a, what he's about to lay down his life for is going to continue, this group, the, these 11 guys left here, Maybe a few others were, were in proximity, but this core group here, this little group of people, is going to have to carry on what Jesus started. They're going to have to do it. And so Jesus gives them one command, you know, the one parting shot. Guys, love one another. And he gives them one promised result. If you do this, people will know that you're my disciples. My favorite movie, uh, at least I would say it's probably my favorite, is, is The King's Speech. Following the abdication crisis involving his wayward brother, Bertie, the Duke of York ascends to the throne of Great Britain and the Commonwealth of Nations as King George VI. Despite his high birth, he's, he's pursued a, a fairly ordinary life, and, 
And worse, he suffers from this debilitating speech impediment. And he has a speech therapist called Lionel Logue, who's, who's helped him make some progress over months and even years of, of working with him. But then, shortly after he becomes king, his ultimate test comes. Germany, uh, the Nazis have rampaged across Europe, swallowing up all these small countries, and, and Poland is kind of the last straw. Britain will declare war now. And so the king has to make a speech over the relatively new technology of radio. And of course it's live, not like now where you could, somebody has some trouble speaking, you can, you can do the take and cut out all the parts you don't want in there and broadcast. He has to do this completely live and completely in the moment. And that's hard enough even for a seasoned public speaker to stare that microphone down and make such an important speech. But this, this man has, has a debilitating stammer. He hates public speaking. And there's this beautiful line right before he makes the speech where it's just him and, and Logue. And he looks at the king and he says, forget everything else and just say it to me. Say it to me as a friend. Now, this is actually a relatively common thing in, in movies and in, in real life. Right? If you only remember the one thing I've taught you, it's this. If you've heard nothing else I've said to you this morning, it's fill in the blank. You can forget all this other stuff, but you have to remember X, Y, or Z. If you only remember one thing I taught you guys, Jesus says, you have to remember to love one another. Nothing else matters more than that. And just to be clear though, Jesus isn't just saying be nice to one another or do a good deed for one another once in a while. Be polite to each other. Look at what he says. Love one another how? Love one another as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. And remember, what's just happened in this story? Jesus has just finished washing his disciples' feet in this show of humility. He's just finished letting his betrayer go rather than exacting some kind of revenge. Jesus demonstrates the depth of his love by laying down his life. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. The kind of love Jesus is calling his followers to isn't just surface level politeness. It isn't just lending a helping hand once in a while when you can't come up with a plausible excuse to get out of doing it. It's sacrificial, it's costly, it's risky. It's putting other Jesus followers and your commitment to them ahead of other possible commitments in your life. That's why the scriptures continually use family language to explain and, and describe the relationship of Jesus followers one to another. Right? We understand that naturally when, when one of your close family members is in trouble, you drop everything to help them, to deal with that situation. And, and the scriptures take that kind of relationship and apply it and call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's the result? Well, the result is that others outside this little group of disciples, and by extension, outside of, of our group of disciples, will notice this and pay attention to it and see that this kind of love for one another points to a connection with Jesus. This is fascinating. This isn't to say that people won't notice our, our doctrine or our ethics or our social concerns, but when Jesus singles out just one thing 
that should be the hallmark of his followers and, and the thing which will distinguish them from any other type of group or, or type of relationship that people have. One thing that will make the watching world around take note, it's their love for one another. And that can be hard. That can be hard in a community such as this. Jesus didn't say here that all people will know us by how pure our doctrine was or, or how granular we got about taking hardline, firm positions on every debatable matter, every subheading within that doctrine. He didn't say that all people would know us by how strictly we adhered to a code of ethics or rules or standards of conduct, important as those things are. He said all people would know us as his disciples because we loved one another. Sometimes think we take hardline sorts of stances on debatable matters or doctrine or ethics because it gives us something we can really sink our teeth into and appear and maybe even feel quite righteous without it costing us much personally, without us having to change a lot personally. But if it doesn't cost us in any way, if there's no sacrifice involved one for another, then we're probably missing the point. If we love one another... The way Jesus loved us, there will be cost, there will be sacrifice. And, and that's the thing that people are going to see, and they're going to see it and have zero frame of reference for it, because that's not how the self-interested world around us typically operates. They'll see that as Jesus followers, we, we have something different, and therefore... We treat one another differently. Let's just look at the end of this passage before we move to our conclusion. Right away, Peter, and you know, this is one of those few things that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Jesus says, this is what's going down tonight, guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be handed over and delivered up to death. And all four of the Gospels, Peter's like, no way, Jesus. I'll protect you, I'll stand with you, I'll die with you if I have to do. All four. And, and Jesus each time is like, no, Peter. No, you're not going to do that, actually. You're, you're, you're going to fail. You're going to, you're going to deny me. Those can be hard words to hear. We want, the, we want the story to go, don't we, that Jesus gives this command and Peter and the rest of them, they, they got it right, right away. Like, love one another, this is the thing I command you. They did it, end of story, roll credits. That's not what happened. And yet, I think that's why it's such a beautiful thing. If you want to read something this afternoon, look ahead to the end of John's Gospel. We know that Peter betrayed Jesus uh, three times. And then at the end, you maybe remember the story, the exchange they have after the, they went out fishing and Jesus appeared to them. And he comes and he restores Peter. This beautiful thing where the guy that got this wrong, the, the one thing that Jesus was, was charging them and he goes right away and fails at it, he's the one that's chosen to be the one to, to care for the rest of them, to care for the others. And that's the gateway I think we have to go through in order to begin applying this to ourselves. It's fine to hear Jesus call to love one another and get all fired up. You know, we can, we can put our fists in the air. I could do a, le hey, repeat these words after me. I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in the faith. I'm going to love my brother. You know, do a cheer or something. 
That's kind of just to do what Peter did right after Jesus gave the command, right? Get all fired up about something that you're probably not going to actually fulfill. Here's the thing as I thought about this passage during the week. I think the mistake Peter made, maybe fundamentally, wasn't cowardice. That's usually where we go, right? We go, Peter, this big, strong fisherman in the prime of his life who did manual labor, and here he is being afraid of this servant girl who's at the door, who's probably a teenager, half his size, and he, he gets all scared and says he doesn't even know Jesus. That's usually where we go, isn't it? But when Jesus reaffirms Peter at the end of the book, what does the affirmation and the, and the challenge that's present in it, what does that consist in? He doesn't say, hey Peter, be braver next time. He doesn't say, stand up for me better next time, bro. He says three times, Peter, feed my sheep or, or take care of my sheep. Peter. I wonder, based on the charge that Jesus gives him, which is basically the same charge again in a different form, love one another, Peter, you're going to actually be the leader in loving one another, in loving and caring and feeding the sheep. I wonder if Peter's problem wasn't actually simple cowardice, but maybe his deeper problem was that he was, he was trying to be a hero instead of just sticking with and, and loving his brothers. Here's the thing, and I'll end with this. As much as we were right, I think, in a past era to emphasize that faith needs to be personal, you know, having a personal relationship with Jesus, having a personal devotional life, that's right, that's important, that's good. I believe in, in this age and, and the era that we're living in and probably entering into more and more, we have to also emphasize that faith needs to be corporate, right? Not, not corporate in the, the pejorative sense of the word, but corporate in its root sense of the word, meaning pertaining to the body. Corporate, real, embodied, living life together with one another. To, to return to where I started, uh, it's the thesis of Sebastian Younger's book, uh, Tribes talks about how soldiers in battle or, or people in, in situations of natural disaster or other trying circumstances can actually endure incredibly hard things if they have a supportive group around them. And of course, in such trying and difficult circumstances, you have to stick together if you're going to survive or there will be serious consequences for not. It's after the combat is over that the, the soldier comes back to our individualistic or even isolationist society and, and, and doesn't know how to cope. It's after the, the crisis is passed and the person tries to come back to her normal life in our fragmented and preoccupied culture that she doesn't know where to turn. Now maybe we would be unwise to hope for some great hardship to face, though sometimes I do wonder if it might not be one of the best things that could happen to our culture, but, but I digress. But it's hard to argue with the fact that without some, some sense of risk involved and without some consequences, if we don't do the thing, we often just drift off into whatever is comfortable. Here's where I want to leave us as we conclude this series and, and look toward what's next. 
some of us are more uh, observant of the church calendar or the, the Christian year than others are, and that's fine. But next Sunday, uh, Pastor Heather is going to start our series for Lent and explain in, in greater detail what that season is about. And she has a, a deeper understanding of this than I do, and, and I'm very glad that she's the one that's going to be doing that. But I will say at this point, Lent is about more than just giving up some token thing out of a sense of obligation or even self-discipline. Although sometimes that can even be hard if you ever tried giving up coffee when you drink it every day. But we'll set that aside for now. It's about more than that. Lent is about simplifying our lives and stripping away that things, those things that distract us and cause us to drift in that direction just of the, the easy road and whatever is comfortable. One of our earlier messages, we looked at, at Christian love being the exercise of our spiritual gifts along with the sacrificial use of resources for the building up of our brothers and sisters in the faith and the glory of God. So four things, use of spiritual gifts, sacrificial use of resources, building up our brothers and sisters, glorifying God. That's sort of love as a verb kind of a definition. Love in action. Today I'd like to leave us with one other thing that maybe you want to write this down, sort of definition, but more along the lines of love as a noun or, or, or the kind of bond that, that Christian love creates among one another. This kind of bond forms through time intentionally spent together along with risks taken in, in the knowledge that there will be consequences for not doing it. And things like war or natural disasters, the risks taken are, are obvious. They are immediate. They are right now. They are sometimes life and death. And the consequences for failure, likewise, are immediate. They, they will happen right now and be really obvious. Those things, as they happen in our lives together as followers of Jesus, the risks, the consequences, they're a lot more subtle but they are no less real. So a couple of questions as we anticipate the next season and, and we think about maybe what it's going to mean to, to simplify our lives some. Maybe not permanently, maybe for a, for a given time to seek the Lord more diligently, um, to strip away some of the distractions and so forth. Some questions. What are we doing with our time? If time spent intentionally together is essential in, in forming the kind of bond that we need to have, what are we doing with our time? Now, that's not to say that we need to do nothing other than church things. I've seen that become an idol for some people, and that's not what we want to do either. But are we wasting time on things that, that we're pursuing that we think will satisfy, which deep down we know don't, when we could be loving our brothers and sisters it's part of our problem simply that we're distracted from loving one another by fairly trivial and possibly not actually wrong, but fairly trivial things that are just taking up way too much time. You know, that we, that we look back and like, I used to only spend an hour or two a week doing that, and now it's an hour or two a day. That's a question to ask. Another question. Are we, are we risking anything? Now, maybe we're not taking life and death risks for our faith, though there are brothers and sisters around the world that actually are doing that. 
But maybe there are still risks we could take, even in our relatively safe little corner of the world. Maybe it means offering someone forgiveness, or asking for forgiveness, or letting go of an old grudge or bitterness. Maybe it means stepping up and serving alongside others, even if you don't feel ready. Maybe it means sharing your faith with someone that you know needs to hear it, but you're just kind of too afraid to and don't want to look silly or embarrassed or have people think you're weird. Maybe it means opening up with your your small group or some other people that you care about, about a struggle that you're having or or confessing your sins and, and seeking accountability with one another. So that's the second question. Third question, are we, are we mindful of the consequences? Like I said, in, in a situation of combat or natural disaster, the consequences for not following through on what you're supposed to do, very obvious, and sometimes life or death. As I said, it's a lot more subtle in our lives of faith, but it's something to think about. Where are your current patterns in your life of faith and in your your loving one another and being part of the body? Where are those current patterns? Well, where are you at with them now? And where are those taking you? Where do you think they will take you in the future? And is that actually where you want to go for yourself, for your family? The answers to some of these questions will help us as we think about observing the, the season of Lent, the things that the Lord might be calling us to resist or forsake or just lay aside for a time. But as we leave this series behind and enter into the next season, I would encourage us to do so, not totally leaving this behind, but looking at this next season in terms of how will any of these things help us to love one another, to be the body the way Christ is calling us to be. So I'd encourage you, continue those conversations you were having at the beginning. Talk to somebody about what you might do, what the Lord is calling you to do. And, and if there are things that you want to come and talk to somebody on our church staff or in leadership and our church board in any way, it's one of the reasons we had the surveys earlier that we had uh, to see where, where some of you are connecting and to see where maybe there are some gaps where Maybe some of you just feel that the Lord is calling you to fill in some of those gaps, to step up, to start something, to do something in your home, to have people come together to pray. There's all kinds of ways that you can fulfill this. So let's spend a few moments in prayer before we close uh, toward this end, and then we will respond to the Lord together. But let's, uh, let's begin to respond now, even in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the love that we see demonstrated in Jesus. And we pray and we long to love one another with that same love. Lord, as we go from this place, may we go knowing that it isn't just just a matter of simply imitating, although in Jesus we have the most amazing example we could ever hope for. But may we also go knowing that loving one another as Jesus has loved us is, is in fact, loving one another with the love that Jesus has loved us. As we go, the life and the love of Christ that you've so richly and graciously given, may that flow into us and through us and out from us to our brothers and sisters in the faith 
and to the, the watching world around us. Lord, will you give us clarity in how we, how we use and invest the time that you've given us? Will you give us boldness in taking risks for our faith, whatever that might look like? And will you keep us mindful of, of the consequences of obeying or not obeying uh, your call to love one another? Will you give us clarity of these things, Lord? And we pray that by your spirit at work in us and through us and among us, uh, we'll see this increasingly being true of ourselves, of our families, of the little groups of people we interact regularly with and, and of our, our congregation and our wider community as a whole. And we pray that even as this text exhorts us that we would also see the promise in it coming true, that people would know that we are your disciples, uh, that they would see that there's something inexplicable that they simply have no frame of reference for, uh, the kind of loving community of faith that grows in our midst. We pray through Christ our Lord.